So just to recap, Acts chapter 5 started with Ananias and Sapphira and moved on. Now we're at uh, verse 29. I was going to complete chapters, part of chapter 6 last week. But every time I think about something, it doesn't happen. Like I want to finish something, it won't happen. And so, <laughs> so I mean, I'll have to rush today and see what, how much I can cover. But obviously, if you have questions, we can always pause and try to answer questions and comments. Looking at uh, 28th verse, for example, 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and high priest asked them the following stuff. So this is where the apostles, the, the disciples of Jesus Christ were brought to the leaders again. This is the second time I believe they were brought in front of them to address an issue because they told the disciples to not to spread the word of this name. And what is that name they're referring to? Whose name? Huh? Jesus Christ. I mean, you have to sort of picture the hatredness that is in them towards this name. They don't even want to say the name. And just by that, what I understand is they actually are feeling guilty to begin with. They're already guilty. So they don't want to say that name. They probably are scared or worried if they, if they call upon that name, maybe something is going to happen. So they're not, they don't want to say that name. So they brought the disciples back to um, this inheritance. So we see here their continued obedience, the continued obedience of disciples. They're still going to obey. It doesn't matter how many times you bring them before the Sanhedrin, before the committee, before the council. Are they scared of the council from what we've learned so far? Are they scared of standing in front of the government? I mean, these guys are big heads. Really, they have so much of authority. And then we will just look into, if you move on down, we will look at um, the high priest, for example. He's got a lot of connections in the, in the entire Roman Empire. He's got connections up all the way up to Syria and so forth. So he's a big guy. So these people should be, I mean, when people face the council, it's like almost they're, they're sort of saying, you know, their heart is in their throat. It's like, oh, what are they going to do? They have every, I mean, at least they take authority to, to beat and do whatever they want. So we'll see it. I mean, not only just beating, they'll go so far and we will learn what it is. So we see here the obedience. So they brought them and made them stand in front of the uh, Sanhedrin. So what is the high priest saying? Saying, did we not straightly? Okay, and when they, heard, when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest asked. Council did not ask, but the high priest asked them. What happened? Did we not say strictly, straightforward, commanded you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, ye filled Jerusalem with your doctrine in, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So obviously these people are already, the high priest is already saying in some ways, like indirectly that uh, you're really pointing us, your fingers at us that as if we killed Jesus Christ. And in some ways, in fact, that is true. So they've been so bothered. I think last week we talked about something when someone is pointed out when someone is caught doing some mistake, obviously, what is going to happen? What is the reaction going to be? Not happy, right? Not happy reaction. Uh, what is it? Uh, the NET just says, uh, to bring this man's blood on us is an idiomatic phrase meaning you intend to make us guilty of this man's death. Intend. They intend. This is the high priest saying, right? You intend to bring this guilt upon us. So what are you doing? We told you to stop doing all these things. You're not stopping. And then you always, when, you, when you're brought in front of us, you're pointing your finger at us. 
Peter is constantly doing that. You put this man to death. You put, did this. You gave him up to the uh, people of Jerusalem. You talked to Pilate and so forth. So he's accusing as if from their perspective, it is Peter and the apostles who are accusing them. But in reality, I think personally, they're feeling the pressure because they have given Jesus to this Roman uh, em em emperor. So obviously they're part of this whole thing. So did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name and behold, you fill this duration. And this is amazing how this priest is complaining. Now you filled, you have filled is a perfect tense. You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon me, upon us. Then Peter and other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. That's what we're seeing, right? Then Peter and other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than man. So what happened in Saul's story? Anybody remember the conversation between Saul and Samuel? Saul was supposed to wait for Samuel, right? What was Saul's sin? If you read the life of Saul, the first king of Israel, you'd sort of feel bad in the first reading or second reading. I felt bad for Saul. I'm like, Lord, why? What did he do? I mean, it's just a small thing. I felt bad for Moses. After so long leading them all the way up till the promised land, Moses, go up and see, that's the land I'm going to give. Really, uh, Lord, all these years I've handled these stiff-necked people. They want to kill me. They want to beat me. I, I did everything I can. You don't want me to step into the promised land? No, 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 no. You're not going in there. You have not obeyed my Lord, it's just one time. I just slapped the rock just once. That is just one mistake. Moses you're not going in. See the land. See the land that I'm giving to the Lord, this is unfair. This is unfair. I mean, you know how strong I used to be and you put these people on my shoulders. Now I'm just feeling like I'm done. I'm, I've been hit by a train. And now after doing all this, you don't want me to enter into this promised land that I led these people unto here. Moses, your time's up. You're going to be gathered with your fathers. I mean, it's just amazing. Moses did not respond in any negative way. He just took God's word. He's not going in. You're done. Okay. One mistake I learned. I mean, obviously at the beginning, Moses gave all kinds of complaints like, wow, I, don't, I can't speak. I stutter this and that and that and they, all kinds of excuses. But that is done away. And this time he did one thing. He felt the pressure. He asked God for help. God gave him help. But at the same time, he also, God said, don't hit the, I mean, he didn't even say don't hit, speak the word which is what? Basically, do not hit the rock. But Moses hit the rock. It's a mistake and he's not seeing, he's not stepping into the land. But God gave him the, the opportunity to see the land. So that is one mistake. With Saul, I mean, if you look at Saul's life, he, was, he came from a lowly uh, condition, family lifestyle. He was so committed at the beginning, right? Saul's life was just amazing at the beginning and he doesn't even want, he was just amazed or surprised uh, at Samuel making him a king. But then eventually what entered into Saul's life? He is one of the handsome. He's the first king of Israel. Oh, and even then he was, a, he, this is the whole thing with Saul. He was not appointed by God directly. Yes or no? Who wanted a king for Israel? Who came to Samuel in chapter 8 and complained about wanting a king? king? People. Samuel, Samuel. What's wrong with you all? Appoint as a king. What? Appoint you what? Appoint as a king. And Samuel didn't even ask why you want a king. They even said, these people said, so that he could go and fight for us like those kings. 
So they want a king so he could go and fight for them. And then what was God's, Samuel's response? Oh, he felt so horrible. He went to God. He asked God, what do you do? What did God say? Samuel, give what they want. They don't want me to be their king. What does that mean? What is that telling about God? Was God already their king? God, that tells me at least God is their king already. He doesn't, they don't want God to be their king, but they want some human being to be their king. So maybe God is just so difficult for them. Maybe they thought, oh, we've got to follow all these commandments all the way from Exodus unto Samuel book. I'm just giving you the time span. We have to follow all those commandments. He's just, he's just so difficult. I mean, if we sneeze wrongly, he's going to count it as wrong. So we have to sneeze rightly with God. So probably we don't want him to be on our side. So throw him aside, bring human king, and they brought in Saul. Obviously, God approved. Well, I would argue that, I mean, the whole book of Judges is all about the dethroning of God uh, from that position of kingship. They, they've been re- they were rebelling against him from the very beginning. But, I mean, Judges is all about that dethroning, and the whole process of that dethroning is what leads you to that moral meter. Mm-hmm. Okay? This is, uh, you know... The, there are two possible ways to take the ending of Judges, that constant repetition, uh, that constant repetition of those phrases, this is what every man did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king in Israel. Right. There are two ways to take this. One, this is an apologetic for the beginning of the monarchy. Or number two, this is what happens when God is not Everybody did right in his own eyes. So whatever was right, they did it. And by the end of the book of Judges, you see moral decline in Israel. I mean, there's just, it's horrible. I mean, you compare, I don't, I mean, we don't have the evidence of what, how exactly people lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, but then you compare these two, there's no morality in their lives anymore. But end of Judges is just like, Lord, why did you not wipe these people again the second time? after Noah's incident, because that's the state of their morality, it declined so rapidly, so downward. I mean, God was just so exhausted, I would, I would say, because every single time they need help, they need God. Oh, help me, we're just dying, we're struggling, Lord. And this is the example of compassion. Oh, no, 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 my children. My sons, my daughters, no, you cannot struggle. I'm gonna raise up a judge. You, you, go. Samson, go. Jephthah, go. He's sending and sending and sending. Then there is peace for some more years. And after that, they commit sin again. And they're just living their own life. I mean, that, that book of Judges is also a prime example for God's patience. I mean, the heavens, the universe is, is obeying God. And here is some group of people disobeying the Creator. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's just, I mean, we come... It's just I mean, that's why God was so particular about obedience. In the book of Deuteronomy, I think majority of the book of Deuteronomy is about obeying God. If you obey God, I'm going to bless you. If you don't obey me, you're going to receive curses. That is as simple as it can be. God was so simple in the book of Deuteronomy, but these people still disobeyed God over and over and over and over again. And then throughout the book of prophets, you can learn how God sort of, I'm not saying literally, but sort of wept for his people. He was not able to do what he really wants to do, but he's there forcing him to punish this people of Israel. You see that? They're forcing God to do, to give them this punishment. They're forced God to raise up an army to teach them a lesson of Assyria and Babylon, Persia, all these kind of nations. They, they forced God's hand to, so that these other enemies could come and wipe out the nation of Israel from the 
from the face of what sort of basically saying clean. Judah was clean. I mean, they faced deportations. All that is because of their disobedience. God requires his people to obey. God required this Saul to obey a simple thing. He did not obey. So what happened? Curse. Samuel said, what is it Samuel said? It is better to obey than to offer what? Well, this is like uh, the issue with, with Balaam. Balaam and Balak. Uh, Balaam tells Balak, he says, listen, you know, God's not going to curse these people because they're blessed. But if you can get them to disobey and to commit idolatry, then God will be forced to destroy them himself. Mm-hmm. And Balaam... That's an interesting story. The prophet Balaam, when Balaam was slapped, don't you dare go <laughs> curse these people by God himself. It's just an interesting story. But yeah, I mean, you get to get these people to curse God. And these people can curse. I mean, can, can disobey God. So simply. It doesn't matter how much God has done for them. They disobey. I mean, the prime example is in the book of Joshua, for example, where Rahab, a prostitute, saved the lives of these Israelites who shouldn't have, she didn't have any business to do that, but she did. Whereas Achan... Part of this Israel's family commits sin. You see? I mean, it's, we can go into the Old Testament. Oh, Lord, help me. Maybe I need to pause here from the Old Testament for a second. But uh, going back to Saul really quick. Samuel told Saul that it's wrong. Obedience is better than sacrifices. These people are not sacrificing any, anything here. What we see from the disciples' life is they're obeying God. So Peter said we would rather obey God than to obey you. So the disciples had an encounter here. Uh, with the angel of the Lord. They're obeying the commandment of the continuously, to continuously proclaim the name of Jesus. Obviously, we learn that angel of the Lord came and told these disciples to do what? To go, stand, teach, or preach all about the life. Who is the life? Who is the life? Jesus is the life. So go teach about all, not just one thing, every single thing about him, about him. And these disciples are doing just that. And then the, the high priest and the committee had some headache with them. So, oh, we told you to stop doing all that. And then they brought them. Well, they said the disciples had an encounter with the angel of the Lord. They are obeying basically the commandment of the Lord. They're not going to do anything else. So where there is a conflict between God's demands and humans' demands, obedience to God must trump obedience to humanity. So we are responsible to show that obedience to God. And I believe with all my heart that God would delight in our obedience to Him. Obviously, we have to be really analytical in this case because you know, God on the other side said, obey your authorities. <laughs> we, we have to analyze. But obeying God, obeying God comes first. So in spite of many hurdles to God's work and for God's word, which has been going on back then, and also we see that now, God's mission continued through God's disciples who are committed and dedicated to serve Him. Do we have that kind of dedication because it takes dedication commitment to serve the Lord you know when we are called to minister well when we want to be in ministry life is not going to be a smooth ride right it's not going to be all this nicely paved road without no bumps in the road at all there's a lot of up and downs you actually climb mountains and get down on the mountains you hear you go into rocky roads and thorns and everything else but we must have the dedication and how can we have the dedication and commitment to continue to serve the Lord even though we are facing hurdles is realizing what Christ has done for us. Yes or no? When we realize what God has done for us, a simple thing is the gift of salvation. We didn't ask God to give us a gift of salvation. We didn't buy eternal life from Him. We didn't buy the salvation from the Lord. We didn't pay millions of dollars per person to get those gifts. God has given that for free. 
whoever believes in him, in his death, burial, resurrection, you receive this gift of eternal life. When we realize what God has done to die on the cross, dying on the cross is most heinous, most terrible thing. And that too, he was put between how many, between what people, what type of people? See, crucifixion itself is the horrible thing. That's the, I mean, you don't want to go to that point. So that is the horrible type of death. And Christ was led, he was brought into this world. Now Christmas is coming on. I know he's preaching on Christmas, so I won't say much, but I'll keep quiet. But you see, you'd learn why Christ has come to this world. He came to this world. He is led to the cross. And sometimes we don't even think about the effect of crosses, work on the cross and the gruesomeness of his death on the cross because that's a lot of dedication by Christ. To die for the people on that cross is just amazing. Sadly, it is a sad thing, but it is really amazing. And we see God's sacrificial love in that he doesn't have to go through the cross, right? It, why would he care? I mean, why should he? But he loves the people. So when we think about what Christ has done for us in our lives and how he redeemed us, which we most of the times take it so lightly, that's why in just about every prayer I pray, I ask God, open the hearts of these people to listen to the gospel because that is very important. These people having eternal life is important. And so when we understand that, we would dedicate and commit ourselves no matter how the road was. I mean, the ocean, sometimes when, we, when, when I drive down our apartment, I, I let my wife say, why is this thing so high today? I don't know if it's really high or not, but it looks like it's high. Sometimes sometimes it's like low, sometimes it's blue, sometimes it's white. I'm like, I've told her something's wrong with this thing. And way down where the ships, they park those ships. I wish I, I could go there, but I don't know how. Because I just want to run, I'm just kidding. I have my little old fun things. Way down there, I see some waves coming in. So I was like, maybe the sea is a little bit angry today. We don't know. Especially when the moon is closed, there's going to be high tides. So, I mean, it's not always bumpy, right? I've seen videos of ships going in the ocean where there's storm. There's some, that's a different, whole different thing. I, was, I get really scared of how the ships go down. I'm like, oh, you're about to break into pieces. No, they won't. They, they come back up again. Again, they fall. I couldn't believe in the ocean when there's storm, there's almost like 20 foot, 30 feet drop in the water and then up again. And, it, and they say there's U.S., Nuclear, huh? Yeah, it's, uh, it's just so basic for freighters and tankers. They just do that without... They go up and go down. And I saw the videos of uh, the nuclear warships. They said, this is a city on the ocean. They don't blink. I'm like, uh, no, I don't want to be on it when there is that kind of oh, storm. No, thank you. Because everything is sliding down, going this way. But it's amazing, this is our, our, our road that is in front of us is not always smooth, it's so bumpy. That is where we need the dedication. How can we get the dedication and commitment when we see, when our focus is on Christ, what he's done. And I said this in my evangelism class as well, like I don't know if a lot of people would, when they see Christ face to face, they probably say, oh, is that, you are Christ? I thought you were one of those who got the 17 packs and built muscle and handsome looking one of, <laughs> hey, you look terrible, Jesus. If I knew you were like this, I wouldn't want to be in your party. I wonder how many of people would just reject God at that time. Because Isaiah says that, right, this son of man, this servant is not one of these world's handsome people. Who were two people in the Old Testament that were ex described as handsome looking? 
One is the first king of Israel, Saul. He's tall. Saul's tall and handsome, right? Some people go all the way into explanation. Oh, he's probably one of those. Uh, he's got this Nephilim genes. And he's so tall, so big. That's just speculation. Well, who's the other one? David's son. Absalom, Absalom, who cried so out loud when Absalom was killed? David. Absalom was so he's the most handsome on the earth. So there were so many following. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, the prophet Isaiah, 700 plus years ago, he explained, this Jesus is going to be really, mm -hmm. you probably won't even recognize if he's standing right in the midst of you. Who knows if he's got a big belly or short face and maybe short how If he's a Jewish guy, I mean, his expectation is probably five feet some high of things like that. But I wonder how many people, when they see Jesus, they're going to be like heartbroken. Oh, no, I thought our leader is going to be the most attractive leader on the planet. But these disciples did not commit because of the personality, outward appearance of Jesus Christ. But what he has done on the cross for the sake of these disciples. They were dedicated and they say, Peter said, no way, we'll listen to you. What are you going to do? Are you going to bring some harm to us? Go on. We will not stop teaching or preaching. And that's what these disciples said. So moving on here, um, verse 35. Wait a second, I, need, I think I missed something. Yeah, the continued defense of Peter. This is another time Peter was defending himself. So the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom he slew and hanged, Hang on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and to forgiveness and forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, when he forgives sins, uh, for example, of this lady in a parable, this lady comes to the, the, the Pharisee where Jesus was having a meal or supposed to have a meal. And when this lady came into the house and that she was at Jesus' feet, wiping Jesus' feet with her tears, and anointment, and then this Pharisee, the so-called Pharisee, he thought in his mind, what is she doing here? I mean, she's a sinner. How can she come? I mean, Jesus was known for meeting with sinners. For example, Zacchaeus. What happened to Zacchaeus? Come down, Zacchaeus. Pharisees, the so-called teachers of the time, they did not like Jesus mingling with these sinners because these are sinners. So, here Peter is saying, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom he slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We can go into those two last phrases in the details, but obviously Christ came to save who? Israel? He came to save Israel, right, to begin with, but then what happened? They rejected him, yes? So God then extended his grace towards who? Thank the Lord he did that. If not, we wouldn't be in the plan of God, in the picture of God. So, Peter continues with defense. So notice what Peter said here. The God of our fathers has raised up Jesus. This Jesus is not simply a historical figure in the past or that his death was a historical event in the past. The death of Jesus is an event of salvation in which God has promised that hope in history past. God has promised that hope that is Jesus Christ. So his, his death is not some sort of historical thing. And first, some skeptics it is not even a historical thing. Probably there is no Jesus, there is no Christmas. <laughs> I was writing a little article about December 25th. It's not going to be a whole lot um, bigger article, but is December 25th the Christmas day really, or stolen from some pagan day. There's critiques all over the world who just say Christians robbed this from a pagan source celebration, whatnot and so forth. So, I mean, my question is, does it really matter? No. 
what matters is Christ came to this world. Whether it's 25th or 26th, it doesn't matter. Maybe the more you hear me, the more things of it doesn't matter comes out. <laughs> so, sixth, April sixth was one date. March twenty fifth was another date. More likely in the springish time, considering some of the facts we know about that. Some say it's winter. Oh, the, the disciples, I mean, winter time is so impossible because you can't shepherd the flock during winter in Jerusalem or the hills of... I mean, Jesus came to this world. That's what matters. And I'm not going to sit down and cry about dates and times and all that kind of stuff because God gave the important elements that we need to know. If date is so important, he would have said... Uh, in the era of Darius, the king of Persia, so forth, and you read the book of Haggai, for example, it opens up with a date. <laughs> I mean, there are several, couple, at least two or three times of dates that Haggai gives. So it's so important, God would have given that date so specifically. I brought my son into this world on this day and this time of the year and so forth. It would have been very clear, but it wasn't clear. But then why would scholars beat their head to walls trying to figure out when he... For me, that's like, listen, Jesus Christ came to this world, praise the Lord. He came. That's the most important thing. He died for the sins of this world. That's the most important thing. He gave me salvation. That is important. What is the date and timing? Is it p.m. or a.m.? doesn't matter to me. And I don't really care. I mean, I'm not being arrogant, but I don't really care because it doesn't affect my salvation what day, if, he, if I believe it's December 25th or 25th and half. Am I making sense? So again, this, I'm writing a small thing on it, but maybe one day I'm not yet ready to get attacked. So, just kidding. If I put it online, it's like, oh, everybody will write against you. So, so here, uh, Peter was saying that this is not a historical figure of the past or Jesus' death was not a historical event in the past. The death of Jesus is an event of salvation. Because of his death, burial, resurrection, there is salvation. Some people believe if Jesus was real, okay, then his death was real, okay, probably it was real, but he never rose up again. But Jesus was the resurrection, right? What did he say to Martha when he was calling out Lazarus from, before calling out Lazarus from the tomb? What did he say to Martha? Huh? Do you, do you be, four words, do you believe? He is the resurrection. He is life. I mean, that's what he's saying. He's source. He is, where is this? He's prince. And Savior, right before this verse we learned, we, we learned in, in the previous chapter that Jesus was the source of life. He is the prince of life. He is the life. He is eternal life. And one of my favorite verses, John 17, 3. If you read John 17, 3, it says uh, the, the wish there in that verse is to know God. And knowing God and Jesus Christ is eternal life. So in that case, who is eternal life? Knowing Jesus Christ is eternal life. For us, knowing Jesus is eternal life. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, he is the way, the truth, and what? He's not simply life, he's eternal life. Who breathed into the nostril of humanity, into the dust figure in Genesis chapter 2? The one who did that? Jesus. How do I know it? Jesus who breathed life into these nostrils of the clay thing or dirt thing. Colossians 1, 15, 16. He was in, in him and by him all things were created. Again, who was the Elohim in Genesis chapter 1? Jesus, who was Yahweh in Genesis chapter 2? Who was the redeemer of Israel from the land of Egypt? Who brought in the plagues, the ten plagues? Who was the destroyer? 
Jesus is not always a soft person. Oh, I'm just so compassionate. You're crying. I'm going to save you. He's not always that. Who's the destroyer in the Old Testament? Christ. He's going to destroy his enemy. Even when you read the Gospels, the things that Jesus says, if you don't believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. <laughs> How many I am's in Gospel of John? Anybody recall? How many I am statements? Seven? Eight? There are I am statements in the Gospel of John. Before Abraham was... Uh, how can you be before Abraham? Jesus, are you kidding? You're probably 40-some years right now and you're oh, no, not even 40. You're not even 50 years old, the people say. How can you be before Abraham? But Jesus was before Abraham. Jesus was before a lot of things. There's not one thing that is done without Jesus. I mean, God has given this whole thing. for His Son is so special. And that special Son, the Heaven's Beloved... The heavens, beloved, came to this world to give his life. I mean, what should that mean? Right? And that's why we're seeing this whole thing. And this guy here, Peter, is really on them. He said, this God that you've, you know, you've killed, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you, you slew and hanged on the tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand. That is the place of honor to be a prince and savior, to, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now notice that this is not the first time Jesus was put on the right hand side and he was a prince and savior and all that stuff. Jesus had a glory before he came to this earth. In his prayer he says, Father glorify me as I have been glorified before. His, he was glorified being altogether even before he came to this earth. So what else is going on here? Let's look at Luke 3.11 where Peter talks about 3.13. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom he delivered second time. In the previous verse, we learned they slew him. Here, he delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Hey, you are, after all, responsible for his death. So Peter, in some ways, is saying that you killed Jesus. And then you continue to stop his work now. You killed him. All you people, the... Fancies and heron, you killed Jesus and now you're telling us to stop his work. Right? That's what they're doing. They're trying to stop. They killed Jesus. Now they don't want this word to go out. And the high priest was so furious or at least not happy. He said, look what you did. Entire Jerusalem was following your doctrine. They're believing in your teachings. We're losing the power. We're losing everything. We don't want that to happen. So Peter, in some sense, is saying you killed Jesus, then you continue to stop his work, but this very Jesus is the promised one. We can't let this go. We can't stop because he is the Messiah. What was Peter's response when Jesus asked Peter, what do you think of me? What was Peter's response? You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, what after that? Keep it a secret. Don't let this go out. And from that moment on, it is really interesting when Peter revealed that Obviously, it was given to Peter to see who Jesus was. When Peter revealed that he is the Messiah, Jesus said, don't talk about this anywhere else. But from that moment on, Jesus looked towards Jerusalem. Why? It's time. The clock is ticking. It's time. Behind the smiley face of Jesus in Matthew 21, the triumphal entry, there's so much sorrow. Do you picture that? Jesus was on this little donkey. People were screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David. They're just so singing and so happy. People in the front, people in the back, and it's just such a huge celebration. 
And some people are even bothered to the point asking, who is this guy? And some say, this is the prophet from Nazareth. At least they recognized him as prophet. But behind this, there's so much pain in Jesus because he's looking at all these people. And you can sense that pain when he goes to the temple. He did what in the temple? He threw everything off on the tables and everything. You turn my father's, this prayer house, this house is supposed to be a prayer house, but you turn it to the den of bandits and thugs. And then Jesus curses Jerusalem, right? He curses the tree. It gets withered. In 70 AD, what happened? There's destruction. So there's so many things, but Jesus set his eye on Jerusalem because he's supposed to go there to give his life. So what is the proof that they killed? We should look at verse 30. Whom he slew and hanged on the tree. So Jesus Christ was killed by these people. So what did God do to Jesus based on 531? He exalted Christ on his right hand, place of honor as leader and savior. And what is the purpose of it? That he might give to Israel repentance and forgiveness of sin. Who can repent? People. Who can repent? God, nobody else. So Jesus is Israel's prince who is co-equal with God, shares God's authority, and is, and, and is the one who initiated restoration of the kingdom, who alone can offer eternal life because he is eternal life. If you look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, those who are believers in the Lord are not simply believers in the Lord. Those of you, you and me, are not simply members of a church. We're not more than that. Do you know what we are? Based on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are the ambassadors of Christ. We are a lot more than Sunday, Wednesday going church members. We are the ambassadors of Christ. And what are we supposed to do? Preach the reconciliation, restoration of God. What is the plan of God from day one after sin entered? Reconcile. Reconcile. You could have let it go. Adam and Eve. You rebelled against me. I've made you back into a powder of dust. Goodbye. I don't need anyone. I can rule on my own from anywhere and do anything. That's not what God did. He was compassionate. His kindness was shown in the Garden of Eden where he clothed them. That's exactly what the serpent wanted. The serpent wanted God to destroy them and kill them for their rebellion. And that's what he was planning on. Because... In 217, God had said, the day in which you shall So he was expecting them to really die, die. So die, die. But God did what? I got another plan. You go out, you go and work a little harder, but I'm going to keep my eye on you. I mean, that, that is also God keeping an eye on Adam and Eve and, and his family and everybody else from that point, right? I mean, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to watch you. So that's evidence is like when Cain killed Abel, what did God do? Uh, your brother's blood cried out unto me. Meaning he was watching, he was listening, everything. He never gave up on humanity. That is the compassion of God. Even here we see that Christ, God, God sent Christ to save the people from eternal damnation. He initiated restoration of kingdom who alone can offer eternal life because Christ is that eternal life. Jesus is the Savior. He secures lives before God. Jesus saves. Nobody else can save. That is what we all need to be sharing and preaching, that Jesus saves because He is able to save, and He is the only one who is capable to save. And we also um, looked at this uh, slide. God offers by Eckhart, your classmate, is the one who took class with you? Yeah. <laughs> so he's God offers... He's got the big two-volume... His, his PhD dissertation is the big two-volumes that he wrote a commentary on Acts. Yeah. 
There's a commentary in Acts. So he says, God offers salvation, not retribution for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If God were to take off the people for giving him to the Pilate and Roman authorities, he would have done that so well, but he did not. So in 32, and we are, we are hit witnesses, Peter says now on these things, and so is also the Holy Spirit whom God hath given unto them that obey. So Peter is saying two things here. The disciples are witnesses and the Holy Spirit is also a witness there, right? Lastly, in the verse, we also see the Holy Spirit is with them that obey God. What about those who doesn't obey God? Something to think. Holy Spirit is with them that obey God. But who's going to be obedient to God? Those who are truly believers of God, right? If I'm not true believing Christian, I wouldn't really obey in God and everything. I don't know if there's such a thing as partial believer or not. But there's some people who believe God partially. <laughs> when they need him, you know, when there's harm that happened. For example, when, um, I don't know how many people went to church when coronavirus came out and people are dying. Probably a lot of them ran to church for prayers. A lot of them who never asked for prayers asked people to pray because of this virus and how many people are dying, yes? I mean, sad thing is at 9-11, so many people died from those towers. Churches were packed. People were crying, weeping, seeking God's face. Before that, there's not a whole lot going on. After some time, maybe after a year or so, these churches are back to normal again. These are partial believers who will not make it. No partial believer will ever make it to heaven. God is not to be mocked or to be fooled. So we are his witness of these things and so is Holy Ghost whom God hath given that obey him. So Holy Spirit is another witness of Jesus, the Messiah, and his presence convicts the people who come to him in faith and also transforms people from inside out. So we are out of time. My goal is to finish up chapter 6. I don't know when I'm going to finish chapter 6. <laughs> or if I'm going to get to it. I'm still in 3031. So we will look at this later on again. So for next week, uh, I think I'll continue teaching on Acts even through the December. Maybe I should not. I don't know. Maybe we should study about Jesus one of these Sundays. Maybe, uh, maybe. well, let's see. What is next Sunday? 16th, 17th, 18th? Maybe uh, we can take a pause on there and study maybe on a couple of prophetic texts, prophetic fulfillments about Jesus' birth. Uh, I always want to do that, but maybe this is the time. So we'll pause. I'm sorry, Peter and disciples will pause for a couple of Sundays here and we'll get back with the prophetic text of Jesus. Okay? Any questions? Any questions or comments before we leave? You have anything? I think the book of Acts would go all the way until next December. I don't know. but Unless I speed it up. <laughs> we'll see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. Thank you for your word. I pray that you be with us and uh, Lord, help us to have the commitment and dedication like your disciples and apostles had. We know they saw you, they were with you, they lived right around you. They're always going out with you and learning from you, from your teachings. And we are not with, we were not with you physically in person, but we know you through your word because your word is you. I pray, Lord, that we will dedicate our lives completely to serve you and we will be your ambassadors and share the good news in some form or the other. Give us that boldness and confidence that the disciples asked you and you have given that boldness and confidence to them. I pray that you give the same to us so we would move on sharing your good news to this world. May you save many souls, Father, because soul winning matters to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.